welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates current classic cult films. Not always in that order. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Learhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film history one memory at a time. Tonight's guests are pop culture historians Jeff Abraham and Burt Kearns. Jeff is a public relations executive who's regarded as one of Hollywood's top comedy historians, and Bert is an award-winning television and film producer, director, writer, journalist, and the author of the controversial memoir, Tabloid Baby. Together, they wrote the fascinating book, The Show Won't Go On, the most shocking, bizarre, and historical deaths of performers on stage. And their sequel to that book, Hollywood Endings, will soon be published Bert's latest book is Lawrence Tierney, Hollywood's real-life tough guy. Welcome on, welcome to the show, guys. Hey. Hi, Steve. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. So uh, I don't generally have two people on at the same time, so we'll have to distinguish voices. Uh, Jeff, why don't you introduce the, to yourself to the audience so they remember your voice? Lady, Jeff Abraham here. <laughs> Thank you very much, and I'm Bert. Okay, very good. I think Jeff has a little higher, uh, higher on the yeah. scale there. Um, so the first question I want to ask you guys is since this, since my mainstay is classic films, I'll ask Jeff the question first. Uh, what's the last classic film you watched? Um, hmm. Without, um, obviously with, with today's podcast, I obviously rewatch The Aaron Boy. But I just watched uh, Death Wish 1. They had a Charles Bronson marathon. And it's one of those go-to movies, you know, when you're flipping channels, you always have to watch it. Death Wish, I'll tell you, I, I had never seen it up until two years ago. And um, it seemed like the perfect Charles Bronson vehicle, you know. Charlie, who doesn't have a lot of emotion generally, he's very kind of straight ahead. He's like, he's like... Uh, I don't want to say he's wooden because that wouldn't be fair to uh, an, a terrific actor, but he was a great, uh, uh, a great um, revenge artist. Uh, and that one movie is that really sets the tone for that whole genre of revenge movies. And unfortunately, the sequels get worse and worse and become laughable until you get to Death Wish 17. They're just really terrible. Sequelitis, that is definitely a malady. What about you, Bert? What was the last one you saw? The last one I saw, I watched last night, Avanti by Billy Wilder, starring Jack Lemmon and Juliet Mills from the 1970s, a very late Billy Wilder film. A movie in which, I've, never, I've never seen. In which, in which Jack Lemmon does a nude scene. Which I that, that's which, def that's wish definitely you wish you wouldn't see it. And the one I saw. And then the one I saw before that was an older one, In a Lonely Place, a Nicholas Ray's film with Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. Oh, wow. Those are really two interesting movies that I would have to fill in on my dance car because I have not seen those. Both, ter both terrific. Really funny. The, the, the Wilder movie is really funny. How does the, what, how does the title enter, uh, enter into the equation? Well, uh, Jack Lemmon plays a businessman who was going to Italy to to claim his father's body his, his father was on a health retreat and dies at a spa in Italy and he runs into Juliet Mills who's running to going there to pick up her mother's body it turns out that they had met every every year for 10 years they had an affair and died in a car crash and he finds out that his father was actually having an affair with Juliet Mills mother and hijinks begin as bodies disappear and everything else happens is Avanti an Italian word meaning? Oh, that means enter. When somebody knocks on your permiso at the hotel, and then they go Avanti. Avanti. Got it. Got it. Very yeah. good. Very good. Excellent. Um, I, I watched um, a couple films I had not seen before. Uh, one was called The Subject is Roses with uh, Patricia Neal and Jack Albertson. Uh, and Jack Albertson, I think, won the Oscar that year for Best Actor for his performance. And a very young Martin Sheen. I don't know if either of you have seen that movie. No. Um, it's like 67, I think. Yeah. Um, it was right after Patricia Neal recovered from her stroke. And it's a very intense little three-hander. And uh, right now I'm watching uh, Roger Corman's The Mask of the Red Death. 
which is one of those Corman films he did. I've got to catch up on my Vincent Price. I, I've seen House on Haunted Hill too many times. <laughs> there, there's a great Lawrence Tierney connection to the House of, of Red Death. Um, Lawrence Tierney uh, did a film with the with the um, exploitation director Fred Olin Ray. Mm -hmm. uh, on that set, the sets were still standing, so they quickly made a movie. I believe it was called the. He played the executioner. I forget the name of the film, but he made it on on Corman's sets. Before well, they apparently they there. weren't Corman sets. I think Corman borrowed them from the movie um, uh, with Peter O'Toole, uh, the the, oh, the stuntman. No, not the stuntman. It was actually um, it's not the end of a thousand days, but it's one of those. Um, those epic uh, movies shot in Europe. Um, I'll remember it in a second. Oh. So some people, you know, they their father's a lawyer, they become lawyers. Sometimes the father's a, a plumber and you become a plumber. Tell me how you both suddenly became, or not suddenly, but decided to become uh, pop culture chroniclers. Um. I was a kid who did not uh, participate in sports. I had a, a love of magic. I was an amateur magician. I Unfortunately, I had very fat fingers, so my career in magic didn't last long. But um, I grew up in the, um, in the early 70s when there was that great Marx Brothers revival, you know, and, so, and I, you, know, you Bet Your Life was, was rediscovered and put on TV in about 19... 72 and Groucho Marx and Evening with uh, Groucho came out. So I that's where I fell in love with um, comedy. Every Sunday we had an Abbott and Costello movie on PIX 11 in New York. So and the Bowery Boys. So that's how I loved uh, comedy. And then it, it never stopped to this day. I was at the um, Universal Amphitheater in 1971 seeing a Marx Brothers marathon. Uh, I had just returned from Mexico and I had uh, the Montezuma's Revenge. It was a, it was not a memorable <laughs> night. <laughs> um, what about you, Bert? Well, I'm a bit older than Jeff. I grew up in the 1960s and I grew up as a child of television and a child of rock and roll. I grew up in that sweet spot where my heroes were the Beatles, Jerry Lewis, Soupy Sales, and the monkeys and my favorite movie was my favorite television show was my mother the car etc so i grew up with that and as when i grew up i was i was always a writer my first job was at, in local newspapers and i went, moved on from there i've i've written pop culture for about the past 40 years now um i i've done it in television i've done it in magazines uh and i worked for uh what was known as tabloid television at the time a show called a current affair and a show called hard copy I ran those shows in the early 1990s, and that was pop culture at its most far out. That's where, where I had written the book, Tabloid Baby, which was sort of a mea culpa and expose of those years where we did a lot of crazy things. But yeah, I've sort of always been a pop culture um, nut. I wish I could have used that part of my brain to learn some more languages or something, but that's always what's stuck. Well, we're all kind of keepers of the flame. Um, I think that... Uh... I light a candle to anybody who does a book on pop culture because it usually involves a lot of research and the long hours and very little compensation. I discovered early on that I could not make a living from writing pop culture. So that's how I became a publicist. Yeah. I, uh, somebody said, you're a writer, leave a resume at a PR agency. And I, didn't, I literally didn't know what public relations meant. What is public relations? But I got a job at an agency and... Um, I spent 35 years in publicity. I became a feature unit publicist and promoted everybody else's movies. Now I'm out there hopefully making my own. I've made some made some films and mm -hmm. but I love film history and television history and I'm delighted to have you both on the show. Now uh, I I know the book uh the show won't go on. I went to uh one of your re uh, your um readings and signings and tell me uh what led you guys to write a book about people who die on stage um i have to give it credit to elvis presley uh was the inspiration for this book about 18 years ago i went to see an elvis impersonator i had a 
clients for the opening act. And the end of the show, there was a gentleman in the, the lobby named Al DeVoren. You may not know that name, but you certainly know his voice. Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. Thank you and good night. Well, he was the announcer for Elvis, and you hear that voice at the famous Madison Square Garden concert. And he was in the lobby after the show, and someone said, Al, you've done it all. When are you going to write a book? And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. I'll get to it one day. And this was Saturday night, 10 o'clock. Monday morning, I'm having breakfast, watching the morning news, and it, would, and it mentioned that Al DeWarren had, build, had been killed in a car accident Sunday morning, literally less than 10 hours after I had, had seen him. And I said, wow, you know, it, it really, it really shook me. I mean, this was, and those were his last words. And I thought about all the, the shows that never went on. You know, we all know that Hank Williams died going to a show on New Year's and Jim Croce died in a plane crash. And I knew about one or two performers who had died on stage, Dick Sean and Albert Brooks's father. And I had came up with a great idea for a book called The Show Won't Go On. And I told everybody, I'm going to write a book called The Show Won't Go On. And everybody said, yeah, fine. And Bert Kearns, who was a dear friend of mine, said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. Bert? And that was it. After after 12 years, we got going. I, I had an, an opening in my schedule, and it sounded like a lot of fun. Jeff and I both love doing research and going down rabbit holes. So we started to do the research into this. We found people, you know, like Leonard Skinner, the band who, who had a plane crash on the way back from a show. Harry Chapin, who died in a car crash on, on the way to a show. Edgar Bergen, who died in bed while doing his farewell shows at Caesar's Palace. And we got to more than a thousand entries into people who had either died on the way to a show, on the way home from a show, or on stage. That we said, let's narrow this down to just do people who died on stage. So we narrowed everything down there from our research and got down to about more than 400, maybe 500 cases. Now, some of these people died you know, within five feet of the stage. We had to narrow that down again. For instance, the, the jazz trumpeter Lee Morgan was playing a club in uh, in Greenwich Village in the early 1970s. His band was on the bandstand waiting for him. He put down his drink, walked toward the bandstand, and his, his common-law wife burst in the door and shot him in the back. As Don Adams would say, missed it by that much. So he, <laughs> he didn't make an entry. Uh, so we started we started writing it. We, we got it down. We, we um, made sure that this book was not just a morbid book about people who died because everything gets a bit gets a bit samey i mean people die of a heart attack something falls on their head whatever we made sure that we we tried to tell the stories of these performers uh and to, to, to show the glory of their careers and rather than having their stories lead to something like an emmy or an oscar it leads to this glorious moment on stage when they die surrounded by fans and people who they love and they love to work with um and so we wound up doing that, and we called it "The Show Won't Go On," and we found a publisher for it. The um, the one I remember uh, I hearing about, uh, even without knowing about the book, was Dick Sean. And I'm I, I was certainly not an expert on Dick Sean, but I certainly remember him from "It's a Mad, 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 Mad World." I had heard that Dick Sean keeled over on stage during his act, and people thought it was part of the act. Is that true? You know, that's the great takeaway from our book. If we can give anybody advice, if you're going to die on stage, don't be a comedian. Because it's happened several times that people always thought, wait a minute, that's not part of the act. And there's that momentary pause. I and mean, it happened with the great Tommy Cooper, a great comedy magician. And he collapsed and the audience is waiting. And there's people who goes, wait, I know Tommy's act. He's He's a little old. He shouldn't be falling like that. And that's exactly what happened with uh, Dick, right, Bert? Well, Dick Sean's case is even wilder because people are familiar with him from the producers. As, as you said, it's a mad, 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 mad format world. He, he was in, in that film, but he's also a really great stand-up comedian, you know, from, from the 1950s on. And he was pretty conceptual and far out. People like Andy Kaufman really... Could, you know, owed some of their stuff to Dick Sean. One of the things he would do was he would 
lie down on a on the stage covered in newspapers and and other detritus while the audience walked in and then when the, when the audience was all seated he'd get up from the newspapers nobody knew that he was lying lying under <laughs> the papers the whole time and then at intermission he would often just collapse and lie down on the stage or I'll say, I'm going to take a nap and lie down on stage through intermission and then get up for the second part of his show. He had a show called The Second Greatest Entertainer in the Whole Wide World. He um, had that show. He, he played it in Los Angeles for a, a long period, and he was working out a version to play at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. when he went down to the University of San Diego and performed there. The The... The stagehands and the crew are, were warned, as they always were, if he falls over on stage, don't go out there. It's part of the act. That's what he does. You never know what this guy is going to do. He's going to fall down. Just don't worry. It's all part of the act. So he, he did his act, and he's at a certain point in the act, and he's improvising a bit. And he says, okay, wait a minute. Let's, let's pretend. Let's pretend there's been a nuclear war, and everyone is destroyed in the war except the people in this theater. And I will be your leader. And with that, he did a face plant onto the stage. Got some laughs, got some chuckles, got a little bit uncomfortable for a bit. Some people yelled, get his wallet, take his wallet, huh? They, they all laughed and waited. Sadly, Dick Sean's son was the stage director. He was at the back of the theater uh, with the headphones on. And he called to a stagehand and said, I think, you know, I, dad fell pretty hard. He never falls like that. He really hit, seemed to have hit his head. Can you please go, go out and check on him? So the stagehand walked out, you know, to a bit of laughter, uh, looked down and then walked away. And Sean's son said, what, what, what happened? What, what, what did he say? He goes, well, I don't think he was breathing. And at that point, all hell broke loose. Uh, Adam Sean ran from the back of the stage to the, to the, to the front of the stage, back of the theater to the front of the stage. Um, and as it turned out, this was a, the theater was right next to the hospital. It was a teaching hospital. And the place was full of, of doctors. So he didn't, nobody had to ask if there was a doctor in the house. They all went up on stage. They tried to save him and they couldn't. They got him to the hospital and he, he had already, he was gone. Um, the, another sad footnote to that story is that while they were working, and this is something that Adam Sean will never forget, as they were working on his father to try to bring him back to life, people were coming up to the lip of the stage and asking for their money back because he didn't complete the show you got to be kidding and that's happened in more than one occasion we found uh in in deaths on stage in writing this book did you get much cooperation from the families they did um the people realized we were not as bert said earlier they realized we were paying tribute to these artists so and that we were not being snarky so we did talk to uh family members and next to kins and things of that nature. And they realized that we were paying respect to these performers. So yeah, we did. And I'll tell you, in more than one case, and Dick, Dick Sean's son is one, and these people that have died more than 30 years earlier, they weep when they're talking to us, when they remember this. There's a guy named uh, Oni Wheeler. He was a country music singer. He was the the only person to, to drop dead on stage at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. Wow. And, and it was... It was during a gospel show. They were doing a taping at the at the Grand Ole Opry. He fell over, and of course, what did the other people do? At the uh, all the other participants, they formed a prayer circle around him rather than call an ambulance right away. They 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 prayed over him a bit, and he was gone. And there was a story that said that I had read that said um, the last song he sang was you know when Mama rang the dinner bell, and I spoke to his daughter about it, and she said. No, that wasn't, that's wrong. That was not the last song he sang. Well, I said, well, everything I've read, said, no, no, I, I know the song. And she said, the reason I know the song is that I have a, an audio tape of what happened. I, I have an audio tape of, of, of him singing his last song. And I've had it for 30 years. And I just listened to it for the first time six months ago. And I heard my daddy's last breath. And when you hear something like that, you know, you don't, you're not, you can't be, you can't be snarky about it at all. That's, that's pretty uh, intense. Yeah. A lot, a lot of it is pretty intense. I mean, some stuff, is, some of the stories are ironic and there's a bit of, you know, humor to them. I mean, a lot of people die at really inopportune moments of plays, you know, they'll make a statement like, you know, 
I'm going to live forever, and then fall over, and everybody laughs. And you know, a lot of a lot of time they die during curtain calls. They take a bow and fall over. A lot of opera singers hit that big note and fall over, and people think it's you know they throw roses at them, thinking it's part of the act. By by the way, if there are any actors listening to this podcast, uh, we're not trying to dissuade you from going into this career because the odds are you're going to survive. Uh, or <laughs> yeah. people in radio, because we have a, we have a whole section of people who die during radio broadcasts too. Has anybody died during a podcast? Um, we had video streaming. We had uh, people doing uh, live TikTok videos. So we, yeah, we've got, we got a lot of that, yeah. So what stage is the sequel book Hollywood Endings in? Well, a lot of it, a lot of it's written because originally we, this was included in the original manuscript for The Show Won't Go On. Oh. But it got so large and unwieldy that we had we had to again make those sort of rules. We figured that it had to be people who died in front of an audience with people watching. It could be an audience in a a theater, in an arena. It could be an audience on, on live television or on on radio, etc. But people who died in front of a camera on a movie set or on a TV set without an audience, we we put that aside. And, and so, al and also we wanted to make sure there were people who had died in a way that there was not a chance that they could possibly die. So for example, stuntmen were never included, you know, athletes and daredevils and we're not. Bullfighters, yeah. Right. Right. Cause I mean, we could have done a whole book on it with bullfighters and people of that nature. Well, I have a special affinity for Tyrone power. When I was four years old, we flew from Chicago to LA to visit my uncle. And as my mother tells the story, I was in the LA airport and Tyrone Powers saw me in my cute little car coat and picked me up in his arms. And um, I remember my father kind of glaring at my mother. My mother was kind of floating because she was a big Tyrone Power fan. And uh, this was probably around 1955, maybe. And uh, we lost uh, uh, Tyrone Power on a film set. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Interestingly, if you, you go, when we were doing our research, you go into the files, there was a story that Tyrone Power Sr., his father, had died on the Paramount lot while filming a remake of Miracle Man, which was a Lon Chaney a silent film from 1919. Uh, and this was in 1931. Uh, as it turned out, we did some more research and found out that actually uh, Tyrone Power Sr., didn't actually die on the set. He was at the Hollywood Athletic Club where he was staying with his son, who was known as Tyrone Power Jr. at the time. Uh, and he died in Tyrone Power's arms. Uh, after he died, Tyrone Jr. changed his name to just Tyrone Power. And this is the person who picked you up. Uh, he, he passed away on, I believe it was November 15th, 1958. He was filming... Solomon and Sheba, his own production company, was was filming this uh, in in Spain. They he was doing a sword fight scene on location with uh, George, Sanders. George Sanders. He was doing uh, they were doing a duel when suddenly he felt that he didn't feel well, and he said, I, "I've got some sort of chest pain, etc. Uh, my my arm is hurting." And so, of course, he lit a cigarette and had a cigarette to uh, take care of his chest pain. Uh, he walked back to his dressing room, still in costume as as Solomon. And then the next thing that we heard about a few minutes later was they loaded him into the Mercedes that was owned by his co-star, Gina Lola Brigida, who we just recently lost. Uh, she was playing Sheba in the film. They loaded her in, in they loaded him into her Mercedes, and he had either died at the hospital or he had died on the set. They, they never really said it. But there was also another story that came out about this. That was sort of the official story. The story that, that actually came out was that they, put, they brought him into his, his dressing room where he died and he was dead. And the producer was sort of freaking out because you know, there goes the production. There, there, we can't let people, people know this. What are we gonna do? Uh, Tyrone Powers' new wife, his bride was back at the hotel. So they did a weekend at Bernie's type thing with Tyrone Power, who was still in his costume. Two guys took him, they one on either side, 
and they walked him to the limousine and one of them lifted his arm and gave a little wave to all the crew oh, and, they, and they put him into the limousine and in the mercedes and then drove and drove off with him and and they announced his death much later so we all uh those of us who know that period we know that yul brenner was able to take over the role how much of the movie were they able to save or were they able to save most of it very literally a footage of um tyrone power can be seen i mean they literally literally had to scrap the whole movie wow yeah part of the problem was that that a lot of the love scenes between um between power and lola brigida still had not been shot they talked about rewriting the script around him then then again they had also reshot the battle scenes and they figured they would just insert the guy in the in the in the battle scenes maybe call him young solomon and cast an old solomon but in the end, they brought in Yul Brenner. You know, if if that had happened today, you know, and there have been cases where actors have died during production, whether it be um, Oliver Reed, Phoenix, and uh, the Don Quixote, um, Terry Gilliam's movie. Or was it uh, not River Phoenix? It was a Joaquin Phoenix, wasn't it? No, Joaquin is with us. A River Phoenix, I believe, wasn't it? Who died during well, the River Phoenix died in that nightclub on a Sunset Boulevard. Right. But um, but Terry Gilliam was working on a Don Quixote movie, and it's one of those things they they try to these movies get scrapped in the middle, and they try to replace actors digitally, get a double, and things of that nature. You know that's what makes some of these stories so fascinating. What happens to the production of these movies? You know, uh, Paul Walker, you know, died in a car accident, and he was replaced by um, some digital effects along with his two brothers filled in him for some of the scenes. One of my favorite actors of the 1960s, mainly because I was the devotee of combat, was Vic Morrow. Mm. And I think we all are, are uh, aware of what happened on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. In, in your research on that, on that incident, uh, could that have been avoided? That could have been avoided had they just followed you know, re regulations. Uh, that was that was a it was a crazy time in filmmaking uh, with the John Landis, uh, Steven Spielberg crowd at the time with movies like, you know, the Blues Brothers in 1941. And they were they were all pretty crazy there with a lot of money and a lot of equipment. This took place on, on July 23rd, 1982 uh, at the Indian Dunes Filming Ranch. Uh, just as a little note, this was right inside the 30, the 30 mile zone, the TMZ. Where if if they filmed outside the TMZ, they'd have to pay everybody, all the union members, more money. So this was lower cost. But also they filmed a lot of TV movies and a lot of uh, films there. But they were shooting at night. Uh, they were shooting a scene. Uh, this was based on a Twilight Zone episode called Time Out, where Vic Morrow played a bigot who's transported through time and becomes a victim of persecution during various eras, and he winds up during the Vietnam War. Um, in this one, they were shooting in the middle of the night. It was a, the final setup. And what he had to do was rescue two Vietnamese children from an American raid, carry these kids from a burning village in the dark, across a river, and then up a hill while a helicopter is shooting at them from above. Uh, the two kids were there, were, were, were two young uh, children. One of them, was a girl was six, the boy was seven. Neither of them had union cards. Neither of them had work permits. Neither of them were supposed to be working that night. Um, Steven Spielberg. Or, or at night at all. Yeah, right. Steven Spielberg was one of the producers. He was actually directed one of the segments in the Twilight Zone movie, which, by the way, had four segments. John Landis was the director of this. And although Landis was a nerdy professorial type, he, with, with, he always wore the glasses and always had the, the tie and jacket. He was a screamer on set. This is according to court testimony that happened later. He used to scream on set. He was often frantic and impatient and just wanted to get that last shot in. And they yelled action. And he was on the ground. They had a former Army helicopter pilot overhead. Dor uh, Dorsey Wingo. Dorsey, Dorsey Wingo, yeah. Um, Landis had a, had a megaphone and, a, and, and, the, and the crew. And he marched around. He had a radio transmitter. And a megaphone, barking orders, action. The special effects crew let off some mortars. Uh, Morrow looked around, and they recorded what were his last verifiable last words. 
which were, how did I let them talk me into doing this scene? I should have asked for a stunt double. Action. He went in. Uh, he, it was crazy. The helicopter is coming is coming down lower. I don't believe, I think it was supposed to be above 30 feet. It was hot from the explosions. There's smoke. And there is Landis over the radio saying, lower, 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 get lower. And Wingo is about 24 feet above. And he's saying, this is too low. And he's saying, get lower. And then suddenly a mortar went up, hit the, hit the tail brakes. rotor of the helicopter. It spun out of control. And however many cameras they had, which they were all shown in court later, however any many angles came by, one of the blades swiped off the head of Vic Morrow and the young boy. And then the helicopter landed on top of the girl. Another thing that's famous is that Vic Morrow never got to film the next line that he was supposed to say in that scene, which was, I'll keep you safe, kids, I promise. Nothing will hurt you, I swear to God. Which was which was a mea culpa for him because he plays this bigot character who you hate at the beginning. Right. So I guess in this sequence, was he playing a Vietnamese? Did he transform into a Vietnamese or was he playing a Caucasian person? I think he always was himself in all the scenes, but okay. just sort of in the middle of it. I don't know. Right. Because you're saying that he's being shot at by the helicopter, which was obviously an American helicopter. Yeah. So because in the, the, the first segment, he's uh, he plays a French Jew. And right. then in the second segment, he played a black man in the South dealing with the Klan. Right. So I guess in this segment, he probably played some kind of Vietnamese, although I don't know if he had the makeup on. Yeah, yeah, it's just just one of the tremendous tragedies. Well, let's. Uh, well, this what, book, I'm looking forward to this book because this, if this is an example of the kind of stories that you're going to have in the book, it'll it'll be just as interesting as your previous book. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, there was a, a nine month trial uh, where where um, the the produ associate producer George Folsey Jr., Wingo, and Landis were all on trial, and they were all found not guilty of involuntary manslaughter. The interesting thing is that the movie was released, and the Vic, some of the Vic Morrow footage was included. So they did, they decided, they did not decide to scrap the entire Vic Morrow sequence, which is interesting. And if they had a stuntman, Vic Morrow wouldn't have lived, but the stuntman would have been killed. So it, it just shows the danger. I mean, Bert and I had even talked about we could have done a whole book about stuntmen who had died during making the movies. Or if you talk about death scenes that that appear in movies. There's a, 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 mo a movie called Comes a Horseman with Jane Fonda. It was an Alan J. Pakula film with Fonda and Jimmy Kahn. Uh, and there's a scene in that where a cowboy falls off a horse and is dragged um, through a gate, uh, through an open gate. A quick scene. And the, the stuntman was a famous stuntman. He was Audie Murphy's uh, stunt double. Uh, he, he, he wound up falling off the horse he got snagged. The horse just made a wrong turn. And when he went through the gate, the stuntman's head hit the side of the gate and killed oh. him. Oh, God. You can see that scene in the film, but they cut right at the moment before the impact. But, the, you know, his last role is still is, is there for everyone to see. Wow. Well, let's let's change uh, tone for a second and be happy. Talk a little bit about Jerry Lewis. Uh <laughs> I, um, I'm a big fan of the Aaron boy, and uh, I was reading on IMDb that there was uh, some reference to the fact that it was one of Jerry's favorite movies. And I love hearing that because Morty Tashman is one of my favorite Jerry Lewis characters. That's Morty S. Tashman. Don't forget the S. <laughs> <laughs> Part of part of my I find the appeal of this movie is back in 1961, movie theaters, I mean movie studios, were kind of like fortresses. There were no tours in those days of note. There was no oh. universal tour, so people uh, people were fascinated with what goes on behind those gates. And I think that this is long before Entertainment Tonight made you know movie and entertainment news popular. So. It was just opened a door into an unknown world for most people. And of course, your guide 
is a total doofus who's going to drive everybody crazy. And I, I just love that movie. Uh, tell me what you you think about that. I, I'm I'm really interested in what you have to say. Well, I can't think of walking by the legendary Paramount Gate without thinking of Paramutual Studios. I mean, just the name. I mean, alone. Um, and you say the idiot. I think that's the Jerry is in the height of his idiom. You know, he said he says. I call it the boy period because we have the geisha boy, you know, the, the bell boy, the errand boy, and even the ladies man. He's still playing that idiot. And he's I think this is one of his best examples of the idiot. It's also one of the best examples of of Jerry Lewis, you know, at his peak. I mean, he had just finished filming The Ladies Man, where he had taken over two sound stages, built this massive set of they called the dollhouse it was where he played the you know the houseboy of uh, in, in in a woman's um dormitory right. i guess and here here he had done all this this work where he'd 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 mic'd every every room and had a camera on a jib where he can bring the camera in and out of each room and shoot and this and that and it was this great multi-million dollar spectacle and for his next film Let's just wreak havoc on the Paramount lot. Let's just go crazy and figure out as many funny things as, as we can do. And it was a perfect Jerry Lewis movie in that the plot really didn't matter. It was like a, you know, a Jacques Tati film where it's just lots of nice little set pieces that all work and make you laugh, including one of the, the greatest set pieces in history, which is that boardroom scene. The oh, yeah, absolutely. For the listeners who haven't seen it, it's a wonderful scene where he impersonates a high-ranking studio executive as he's giving orders, but it's all done in mime and to a kind of a rat-tat-tat soundtrack. To a, a great Count Basie song. Um, Blues and Hoss Flat. Yeah. You know, I, uh, Bill Richmond, who co-wrote um, many movies with Jerry Lewis, including The Nutty Professor and this one, he said he had to give credit to Jerry Lewis. He said Jerry came up with this and Jerry just had that amazing gift uh, with music. And so much of Jerry's um, sight gags are uh, complemented by music cues. And and the epitome is the chairman of the board sequence. Oh, yeah. And then there, there's there's so many different little tones in this movie. His His relationship with the little clown in the prop <laughs> shop is so charming. <laughs> Uh, I love that. I love that. And of course, you, you mentioned you can't think of the uh, Paramount Gate without referring to the Paramucha Gate. Every time I drive by the uh, the drive the uh, car wash in uh, you know in Burbank, right uh, right outside of Warner's, I think of him. Uh, I think it was Kathleen Freeman, wasn't Absolutely. she? Absolutely. Yeah. She's the one in the car as he he drives the car wash with a top down. <laughs> I watched that yesterday and I said, that's where I got my car washed all the time when I worked in Burbank. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. And then you've got some really interesting character actors. Um, of course, the great actor Brian Donlevy plays the head of the studio, Mr. Paramutual. Uh, and Dick Wesson plays one of his executives. He's always in a lot of those 1950s films. Um, back in, let's see, this would have been about 19... 95 i had just acquired the rights to combat obviously i had a long interest in combat and i was uh developing it as a feature film it never got made but you know i was able to make a little money at it i decided to go after the aaron boy rights and as i was telling jeff the other day um I I called an attorney and I introduced myself and I said I had just made the combat deal, which had a little bit of press in the press. So I got a call back from Jerry Lewis, although my secretary wrote the name down as L-O-U-I-S. So I was kind of <laughs> staring at the, the little message thing and it, it had a 702 area code. And I said, well, well, that's Las Vegas. That's where he lives. So I ended up talking to him and um, we made a deal eventually uh it took 18 months <laughs> and it, we we were going to remake the errand boy but i unfortunately in those days when you don't have a lot of credits you're referred to as baggage so the the two lead producers whose names shall remain unmentioned here 
decided to make what looked like a remake of the big picture, the Kevin Bacon movie, mm-hmm. as the young filmmaker who comes to Hollywood to get his movie made. They had no idea why we wanted to take Morty Tashman on a terror raid to another studio, but that wasn't what they wanted to do. And to this day, I kind of regret that it would have been a very funny movie because you, can you imagine Morty S. Tashman on on a uh, on a digital set? I mean, uh, <laughs> it would be hysterically funny. That's great stuff. So, so uh, Bert, how how did you decide to come up writing a book about Lawrence Tierney? This happened while I was doing research on the show Won't Go On. Going through newspaper files, I found an article, and the headlines read, Lawrence Tierney arrested for the 13th time. And I stopped me in my tracks for a moment, and I looked at it and told the story. Here he was, Lawrence Tierney arrested for, for fighting and drinking, and it's the 13th time that he's been arrested here in Los Angeles. Well, there are two things. One, I, I, I dug in a little bit deeper and very quickly found that it was not the 13th time he was arrested. It was about the 28th time he'd been arrested in the past six years. And then I also remembered, I I drank with this guy once. I I drank with Lawrence Tierney in about 1993, after the film Reservoir Dogs came out. He had a a sort of a comeback role in Reservoir Dogs. I was at a place, a bar called the, the Formosa Cafe on Santa Monica Boulevard. It's an old Cantonese restaurant. That was big in the 90s. It's been around since the 30s. It was big in the 40s. It was right next door to the, the Warner Brothers lot. And all the celebrities would go in there. As a matter of fact, um, Elvis Presley used to drink there. They kept a booth uh, for Elvis there. And just two nights before Lisa Marie Presley uh, passed away, they had a, a reception for the film Elvis there. And a lot of people that I know got to meet her and sit with her while she was there with Austin Butler and, and her mother. Uh, you know, celebrating the film for awards season. Um, but so back in the 40s, the actors hung out there. And in the early 90s, a lot of the same actors were still showing up at the Formosa, especially guys like Lawrence Tierney, who was were still hanging out at these bars that they hung out in the 40s. But now a lot of youngsters were there. You'd see in one booth, there's Tim Burton, and there's Keanu Reeves, and there's, you know, and there's me at the bar drinking by myself. And the guy next to me is an old guy with a short sleeve shirt. And he looks over at me and says, how you doing? My name's Larry. Shook hands and had a nice conversation with him. I don't remember what we talked about. I remember that there was no fight, no brawls, as Tierney was known for. And um, I started doing more research. And then the, the pandemic hit and the lockdown began. And I had a lot of time and sat down and spent months just researching every story I could find about Lawrence Tierney. And basically managed to get a timeline of his life where I basically was able to track him sometimes on a weekly basis from about 1940 to 19 till he passed away in 2002 and beyond. I should just take a quick break and explain who Lawrence Tierney is, I guess. I think most people would probably appreciate that because I had to look at his filmography and I literally, I feel terrible to say this. The only movie that I've seen of his is Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth where he played Henderson, the rival circus guy. Yeah, and that's that's a story unto itself. Lawrence Tierney was a guy from Brooklyn, born in 1919. Uh, he he was went, went to Manhattan College, quit school, uh, worked as a model for the Sears catalog, where it was a lifeguard, uh, did some theater, did some Irish theater, did some theater in New York, and in 1943 was discovered by an RKO scout, brought him out to Hollywood with great promise, to become a movie star. Uh, he got out to the to the RKO lot on Melrose Avenue uh, on the 4th of July, 1943, and basically spent the next two years as a contract player. They just stuck him wherever they he played a cab driver here, an orchestra leader there, mostly in- under- let, me, let me interrupt you for a second, 1943. So this is in the hot heat of World War II. Was he considered 4F to get into the service or how did that work? Lawrence Tierney had injured himself, and I actually found the newspaper article from 1938 when he was when he was a teenager. He was chasing his younger brother through the house. The younger brother slammed a door, and Lawrence Tierney's arm went through the door and cut his tendons and and hurt his left hand, and he was unable to serve uh, during World World War II, which made it easier for him 
as far as standing out as an actor, but also he really resented the fact that he couldn't serve while his younger brothers did. And one of his younger brothers became known as a bit of a war hero. Um, so, in, uh, um, Bert, is it also true that one of his brothers was the actor Scott Brady? Yes, I was, I was going to get to that. Okay. But basically, all right. So, what happens with Tierney is 1945, um, RKO is. They're not going to pick up his option. They, you know, they, he's been around. They can always drop his option whenever they're, they're going to drop his op option. He sees in the in the papers that one of the the low budget studios, what's known as Poverty Row, is going to make a movie about John Dillinger, the Public Enemy Number One from the 1930s. So on his own, he walks up Gower Street, goes up, goes to the office. As legend has it, swipes a script from the secretary's desk, learns a scene, goes in, gives a reading to the producers, gets the role. Uh, RKO loans him out for 100 bucks a week to these producers. He shoots for three and a half weeks. The movie comes out. Overnight, Lawrence Tierney is a superstar. The, the movie sells out standing room only for 10 shows a, a day in, in Times Square. Dillinger mania sweeps the nation. Suddenly, Lawrence Tierney is a star. Three weeks later, he's arrested in Beverly Hills for being drunk in public. Gets a $25 fine. A week after that, he's arrested again for being drunk and fighting. Within 90 days, he's, he's spending time in jail. Basically, over the next you know five or six years, Tierney drinks and brawls his way out of a career he is you know he's, he's very well liked they, they put him in they put him in films they try but he's always getting himself arrested and it seems that that's you know the end of his career but for some reason someone is always willing to give him another chance because they all said when he wasn't drinking he was a great guy when he was drinking he, he was he was crazy he would just you know he'd be, he, he had to fight you know, you mentioned um, the greatest show on earth. His career was basically over around that time. I think that was about 1951, 52. Um, he gets the role. Cecil B. DeMille decides to give him the role as the bad guy in, in that film. And they they hit it off. They like Cecil B. DeMille gets a real kick out of him. At one point, he's DeMille is trying to do a scene with nine people in, in the scene. And he can't figure out exactly where to place the camera. And Tierney says, hey, can I give you a suggestion? And instead of getting insulted, DeMille says, well, what would you do, Larry? And he tells him, and he figures it out. And Tierney helps him set up the shot. <laughs> DeMille says to him, and he says, and he says you know what? This, I love you. Because of this film, I'm going to make, you're going to get a three-picture deal with Paramount. We're going to get your career happening again. You know, this is great. What happens three weeks later? Tierney is arrested for another fight, and that deal goes out the window. Oh. And this happened to him all the time. It was always one step forward, two steps. So it back. was the alcohol that obviously triggered this anger. But was there something else that triggered the alcohol? Did he have some other trauma in his life? He had. There was. There was quote madness in his family. There, 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 there was problems in his family. I think today, perhaps. He would be diagnosed as bipolar. Uh, back then, no matter what happened, it was every every article, every gossip columnist would write, there's Lawrence Tierney trying to be Dillinger in real life. And he would do interviews and he would say, I'm sorry, I'm helpless with this. You know, if I have one drink, I, I, I can't control myself. You know, AA doesn't work. This, you know, none of this works. And, and I'm sorry, I, I, I can't control it. It got to the point where, he was, he was, uh, he was arrested in 1951 at Saint Monica's Church in Santa Monica. This is the church uh, that they based the film "Going My Way" on, with Bing Crosby and Barry Fitzgerald. Uh, police get a call, as they would in those days, a report of a, of a barefoot quote bum that's outside the church. Cops arrive. The barefoot bum runs into the church, runs to the altar, and says, "I have sanctuary. You can't arrest me. I have sanctuary." Well, it's Lawrence Tierney, and he's in an alcoholic frenzy. He's had really a mental breakdown. Um, 
the two cops aren't really sure. They well, does he have does he have sanctuary? They go to a priest and say, do we does he have sanctuary? Can we? They, the priest says, please arrest this guy now. I have you know, I have early morning mass. Get him out of here. Uh, they had to get a makeshift uh, straitjacket. They um, meanwhile he's screaming, you're not going to kill me the way you killed Robert Walker. Uh, the actor Robert Walker had recently died after his doctors had injected him with something to help his alcoholism. Oh, yeah, that's also horrible. His, his house well, I, I, I'm going to stop you here because Sorry. I want people to buy your book and learn the whole story of Mr. Tierney because it's it's certainly going to fill in a lot of holes in Hollywood history. I'm going to ask Jeff. But Jeff I want to say one thing about Lawrence Tierney. I did not, like many people, did not know his history. But anytime I mentioned that Bert is writing a book about Lawrence Tierney, everybody said, oh, my God, I met him and I had this encounter with him. And it was always a horrible encounter. <laughs> so, I mean, the stories about, I mean, that Bert can fill not only this book, but probably a sequel with all the people who come up to Bert at book signings and said, let me tell you what happened when I met Lawrence Tierney. It's a fascinating individual and a great read. So, Jeff, do you have a Lawrence Tierney-type biography you're thinking of writing? Well, Bert and I are, um, after uh, Bert's got a, a couple of books in the works, um, a Brando-type book and a biography on Shemp Howard, we're going to do a book on Jerry Lewis's hero, uh, uh, Harry Riss of the Ritz Brothers. That's what Bert and I are working on. For the for the listeners who have no idea who the Ritz brothers were, can you tell us a little bit about the Ritz brothers? They were a comedy team for for fifty four years. They started in nineteen twenty five in uh, vaudeville, and they made their last appearance playing a um, a I guess a a bad dinner theater in uh, Florida with Alan Jones on the bill. But in between that, they starred in a number of movies with. Um, Don Amici, Alice Faye, uh, 20th Century Fox in the 30s. Um, the Andrews sisters made their debut with them in Argentine Nights at Universal before they worked with Abbott and Costello. And then from 1944 until 65, the three Ritz brothers were the height of nightclub performers. When they would do a list of the greatest nightclub performers, it would be Jimmy Durante and Harry Richmond and Chevalier and Danny Kaye. And the, Martin and Lewis and the Rich Brothers were always on the list. I mean, they played Vegas in 1946, and Vegas goes back to about 1946. And then <laughs> Brother Al died in 65, and Harry and Jimmy continued to 1979. But the, what makes it fascinating is Harry Ritz was a great physical comedy. And when you watch some of the early Rich Brothers on TV, you say, oh, my God, that's Jerry Lewis's father. And also Danny Kay said, this was my inspiration, and Sid Caesar and Milton Berle. So, but, and everyone said, Harry, why don't you go on your own? You could be the next X. And he said, I would never leave my brothers alone. And that's one reason why we don't know the Rich Brothers or, or Harry Rich for that. And they never made a great movie, in all honesty. They never, they never made a duck soup. They never made Abin Costello meet Frankenstein. But if you were in a nightclub, you saw one of the greatest live shows you had would have ever seen. I mean, it was pandemo pandemonium. It was, as someone said, uh, they were the Martin and Lewis of the Stone Age. <laughs> how would you compare them to the, aside from the films, how would you compare them to the Marx Brothers? As Jan Murray said, the only thing they have in common is the word brothers. And for the longest time, there were four Marx Brothers, but there were only three Rich Brothers. Um, they're closer to the Three Stooges, um, but they're not even close to the Three Stooges. They were an act. You know, the Marx Brothers, yes, they did a vaudeville act. Then they became movie stars. But the Rich Brothers really were an act. Were they, were they zany? They were zany, physical, a lot of um, patter-type routines. Um, Incredible like, like, dancers. Yeah, eccentric dancers. Um, a lot of the double uh, German double talk that Sid Caesar would do, the the phonetic uh, song tongue twisters that Danny Kaye did, you know Mel Brooks loved all the physical mugging and the the wearing of drag that Milton Berle did, so they were an act, a zany. The greatest description someone said, I interviewed one of their writers. He said the Rich Brothers performed with a Hasidic frenzy. 
<laughs> Why do you think they did not translate as film actors? Um, well, Harry being the main brother had all the personality and his two brothers were straight men. So with the Marx brothers, you have Groucho, Chico, and Harpo, three very distinctive personalities. And you even had that in the Three Stooges. I mean, there are some people who will tell you Larry is your favorite stooge, you know. So you didn't have that. You know, nobody was the, the head, you know, was the, a Jimmy Ritz fan. But as Jerry Lewis said, you can't you can't belittle the his two brothers just because they were on the end. Harry was working in a perfect proscenium. You know, they knew when to pull him back. So, but like I said, you know, we don't remember the great vaudevillians, of, you know, you know, Sophie Tucker and Harry Richmond, these people who made their living on the on the stage, you know, that's where they were at their best. Well, it's interesting that today we don't really have comedy teams anymore. It's all solo. You know, I can't remember the last. Well, I guess uh, uh, the the two um, ones, the ones, the mime and one's the magician, the guys who do Vegas. Uh, Penn and Teller. Penn and Teller are one of the few. Can you think of any other teams of comedy guys these days? I mean, I mean back, you know, back in um, the early days of stand-up going in, you know, in the comedy boom, there was, you know, O'Brien and Valdez. There was a, a girl and boy. There were, there were a couple of Mac and Jamie had a comedy team. They well, were Rowan and Martin. Yeah, they were. The yeah, Rowan brothers, and Martin yeah. uh, were probably the last of that era. Well, you know, Steeler and Mira. You know, male right. and female, and Nichols right. and May, but the fact that someone doing physical comedy, you know, that kind of also died out. You know, you think about Mel Brooks. After a while, you know, we had Mel Brooks do Woody, you know, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, and then we get, we got Woody Allen, who his first couple of movies was Bananas, and they were definitely physical comedy, and then he grew up. To, you know, he gave us Annie Hall, and then physical comedy went out the door with Woody Allen. And we had, you know, some of it with, with the airplane movies, but that kind of was kind of like became passe after a while, that type of comedy. Well, as you know, Billy Reback and I are trying to bring back physical comedy with both hands. Uh, we, we, we've written, now we've written 21 spec scripts. So we're out there trying to sell every day. And but it's, it, it's not completely dead when you watch a movie, whether we can, that's a whole nother podcast, whether we are fans of Bridesmaid, but the, that is in that tradition of slapstick. And certainly sure. Adam Sandler has done very well keeping that. I mean, he did a movie called The, what, the Water Boy. Yeah, it was directly from the Jerry Lewis genre. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, you had the word "boy" in the title. What more? <laughs> what, what more could you want? I mean, it was also kind of some people said a remake of Harold Lloyd's A Freshman. So yeah, Adam Sandler has done it, and many of the Saturday Night Live alumni, Will Farrell, is done is keeping that genre alive. Well, well, getting back to Jerry and the Aaron Boy, you know, I think the idea of a complete doofus, doofus disrupting a business is just so funny. And I think we need more of that. Uh, we definitely, we need more comedy, period. I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm always railing to the fact that there's 2000 dramas on television, but where are the comedy shows you can't, you can't miss? I, I think they're at a kind of a low ebb. And in movies, you know, I asked somebody the name of comedy this year and they had trouble mentioning a comedy. I well, mean, my, I just yeah. last night I watched um, the Banshees of Inishirin, this yeah. Colin Farrell movie. I think it's I think it won. It was nominated for best uh, musical comedy. Right. Uh, I, I I did laugh in a couple moments. I did laugh, but this is about as far from comedy as the uh, as the Silence of the Lambs is. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite comedy right now is the Steven Spielberg comedy that um, the Fablemans, which sounds like a, every time I think of that, I think of a Jerry Lewis movie. The Fablemans, Fableman. Yeah, it's I think the biggest uh, the biggest mistake Steven made was not calling this the Spielbergs, yeah. <laughs> because I think it would have helped the title. Uh, I, I I thought it was a lot of fun, and being uh, you know we're all you know involved in various aspects of show business. It's a show business story. How bad can it be? And it, I, I thought the characters were a lot of fun. Although it's kind of interesting that in this in this in this era of authenticity that Steven Spielberg cast his parents with two non-Jews. 
Yeah, find the Jew. Right. You know? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that that was kind of interesting. But you guys, I, I definitely got to have you guys on when your new book comes out. I mean, I just love what you guys are doing out there. And you're such uh, mavens in your various fields. And I think together you pr present a pretty powerful mind. And I'm really glad you picked Jerry Lewis. You know, Bert and I will will agree, and we've gone on many podcasts defending Jerry Lewis, but I've <laughs> always said that no one has made me laugh longer, louder, or harder than Jerry Lewis. And then, you know, we we talked about all the laughs in the Aaron Boy, and Bert will can expand on this, but you tour Jerry Lewis. I think Jerry Lewis did everything but catered that movie, right, Bert? Yeah, well, and that, that's the thing with Jerry Lewis. I always consider Jerry Lewis... To, to really encompass everything about showbiz in the 20th century. You know, the talent, the neediness, the arrogance, as well as being able to sing, dance, do comedy, do drama. He could conduct an orchestra. He could produce. He could direct. He could write. He could do everything. I thought everything there is about showbiz and entertainment in one person was Jerry Lewis. And as, as people would say, he was always very nice to me. As he was always is, nice. Is it, is it true, guys, that he is responsible for giving us video assist? He's one of the people who did. I mean, he there there's there have been arguments saying that other people have done it done it around the same time, but basically, yes, that he was one of the first to do that. For the listeners, this is the the um, technical thing where you can put a video camera, hook it up to your movie camera. And you can actually see the footage as it's being shot or the technical side. I'm not sure, but you certainly have the video ability. So you could actually see your cut. So he than needed to, yes, right. He needed to direct himself because Jerry Lewis would often say, if you watch the um, listen to the commentary to the Aaron boy that he did with Steve Lawrence, he says, I would write a memo from, would come from Jerry Lewis, the director, going to Jerry Lewis, the actor, and say, you're pushing yourself. You know, you don't need to do this. <laughs> but he needed to, in order to direct himself and not wait for the dailies, he was now able to look at, you know, to to, to look at those scenes as they were being shot. Yeah, I mean, he was innovative in so many ways. One other interesting thing about while he was making, while he was making the errand boy uh, on the Paramount lot, Sitting in his office most of the time was Peter Bogdanovich, who was a writer at the time, and he was doing a profile on Jerry. And when he wasn't talking to Bogdanovich, he was on the phone with uh, J.D. Salinger's people trying to get the rights to A Catcher in the Rye. He wanted to play Holden Caulfield in A Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> That that might have been a little unusual for casting, <laughs> but he, you know, if you look at the where the Aaron boy fits, you know, Jerry was really trying to expand. You know, you mentioned the scene with the clown, and then there's the scene with the, um, I guess, Swan. Is you know, he gives that a very emotional speech. You know, I want to be somebody, and then afterwards, you know, the um, the guys are watching a screening of Jerry Lewis um, creating havoc. And they give that long speech, you know, acting is a gift. They have a message, you know. And so it, it, the movies have expand, expanded from just being a series of sight gags that was in the bellboy just a year earlier, you know. And then he gave the message to the nutty professor about the two sides of the personality. So it, it's we shouldn't be totally surprised if you know the way he's thinking that he wanted to do a movie like... Um, Catcher in the Rye, as we know, we fast forward it to the end of the decade. You know, he wanted to do the uh, the day the clown cried. Right. So he definitely wanted, right. like I said about Woody Allen. After a while, he realized, you know, the the first time I met Jerry Lewis was at a seminar, and they took questions from the audience, and I asked him. I said, Mr. Lewis, how long? You say your character is a nine year old child. How long do you think you can keep on playing a nine year old child? Pause until I put the nails in the coffin. Great laugh. But at some point, you know, he was getting a little long in the tooth and he was getting older and he was doing more romantic films. If you look at Three on a Couch and Boeing, Boeing with Tony Curtis. So we shouldn't be surprised that him to do a movie that's about the horrors of the Holocaust. We should not be surprised. A movie that I think virtually no one has ever seen. Uh, no, uh, there's enough of it has leaked out 
on uh, YouTube over the years where you can kind of get a sense of what it was about. But it's not the horror that it's been made to be. The, the myth is greater than, the, um, than what it really is. Next time I have you guys on as guests, I want to mention another one of my favorites from the period. I'm a big fan of Don't Give Up the Ship. I think that that has some real real fun in it, especially when he's uh, he's wrestling with uh, <laughs> watching Jerry Lewis wrestle. Is this definitely an interesting thing to go? Well, well, this has been fabulous. Uh, we have been listening very uh, to very animated chatter from two <laughs> terrific guys. Jeff Abraham and Bert Kearns. Uh, go out and find their book right now. The show won't go on. Look forward to Hollywood Endings, the sequel. And of course, right now in the bookstores, you can find, or on Amazon, you can find Bert's uh, biography of Lawrence Tierney. Uh, do you guys want to promote anything else that you're doing that the world should know about? Um no, everything you want to know about the show won't go on. You can go to the website of that name, and we do keep track of some of the most recent um, show business passings, so um, you can stay up to date to see what's that was happening. the one. That was the one bright spot about the pandemic and the lockdown was that for a year, people stopped dying on stage, and we kind of knew the world was was starting up again when people started dying on stage again. <laughs> we 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 keep track on the website. More pandemics. <laughs> That's all we need. Bite our tongues. Knock on wood. All right. Well, listen, everybody. We've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury. Thank you for listening, and thanks, guys, for coming on. Thank, Thank you, you, Steve. Thank you, Ben. See you again. Thanks, guys. Bye bye.